Turn your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, I, I just want to kind of set this stage because it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. And, and, and a while back, over a year or so ago, we initiated this series of sermons on the uh, Gospel of Matthew, taken out of the Gospel of Matthew, just to examine the life and ministry of Jesus Christ on this earth from the perspective of Matthew, the Gospel writer. And so it's important that we you know, uh, get back into this, and particularly as we're drawing closer to Easter. I know it's still two months away, but still, uh, you know, that'll be upon us before you know it. And, and where we left off in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, well, Jesus and His disciples were there in the city of Jerusalem. You remember, they had been making their way from the northern parts of Israel, up in Capernaum and, and up around the Galilee area, coming down through Decapolis and, and up through Jericho, and finally arrived at the, the, the city of Jer- uh, Jerusalem in time for the, the week of the Feast of the Passover. And so, this is the setting. This is where they are. And so as we resume this, I think it's important just to remind you that uh, I guess characteristic of Matthew as he's addressing a primarily uh, Jewish congregation, he's writing to, to Jews and he is highlighting the emphasis of Jesus as the king. And so he's approaching Jesus' identity and his ministry as, as the King of Kings and, and certainly the Lord of Lords. And so he's elevating Jesus uh, all through his ministry. This is the promised Messiah. He is the King uh, spoken of in the Scriptures out of the lineage of David that we studied in Christian Growth Group and talked about the significance of the prophecies related to the line of David uh, uh, fulfilled in Christ. We left off in chapter 22 as Jesus and His disciples, like I say, are there in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus was teaching on the parable of the wedding feast, verses 1 through 14 in chapter 22. And so, and, and we left off there, and, and now, very quickly on the heels of that, beginning in verse 15, you find a very devious series of testings by Jesus' adversaries. And their goal is primarily to, uh, to, to trip Jesus up, to trap Him, to get Him into tr- some way that they can get Him in trouble because He's undermining, as far as they're concerned, His ministry. So it's interesting, and we're not going to read through that, but I'll, I'll summarize. Beginning in verse 15, it's like one wave after another of Jesus' adversaries, beginning with the disciples of the, of, the sad, uh, of the Pharisees. They don't come themselves, but they send their disciples, you know, their lightweights, along with an interesting group of accomplices, the Herodians. They really don't have a lot in common, except they want to get rid of Jesus. From both, both their perspectives, the Herodians are, are, are zealots for King Herod, and, and they like the government and the influence of the government. But then the Pharisees, on the other hand, they're not big on the government, but they're big on the religious establishment. But, but Jesus is undermining both of those, and so they're wanting to get rid of Him. So they come, and they try to test Him. And immediately following that, you find the Sadducees coming on the scene. They, they try themselves to try to trip Jesus up and to set the trap. And, and then on the heels of that comes the expert in the law, the Pharisees, I guess the big gun. When the, when the disciples couldn't, of the Pharisees couldn't trip Jesus up, and they couldn't get Him in trouble, then they, send, they, they selected probably one of their big guns, the, the, the expert in the law. And he tries. And so success, you know, in succession, they're coming to trip Jesus up to, with a wide range of trick questions, ranging from obligations to paying taxes, uh, you know, to uh, what about the obligations of uh, marital obligations, even after we die? 
die. And then after that, trying to, what, what is the ranking of the laws of, uh, you know, the Jewish laws? What, what's the greatest of the laws? And, and so they, they try unsuccessfully to try to trip Jesus up and to catch him, to impugn himself. And so this is their desperate attempt to, to cause him to get into trouble. But I thought it was interesting. Not only did they fail in that, but you might say, you know, this is, this is the last time that Jesus is publicly confronted by his adversaries. They, they, they hit him with everything they've got to try to cause him to say something that would cause him to be uh, uh, criminalized by the by the multitude. Jesus is gaining popularity. The people think he's the the greatest thing. He speaks with authority. He works miracles, and so he's got a lot of following. And they're trying to turn the multitude against him, but unsuccessfully. And I thought it was interesting after Jesus had thrown a question to them. Look at verse 41 of chapter 22. It says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. Now, they've been asking the questions. He turns the table on them. And He says, uh, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is He? They said to Him, the, the son of David. Everybody knew that this would be someone of David's lineage. The thing is, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious establishment is thinking that this is just going to be a regular human being. One of David's biological relatives or descendants who would come on the throne. But then Jesus points out, he says, then here's a trick question. How then does David in the spirit call him Lord? How would David worship one of his own descendants as if he was deity? And he quotes the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make my, your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus is more or less reinforcing the reality that as a descendant of David, he's not just human. He is fully God and he is worthy to be worshipped. So when he poses that question, look at verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question Him anymore. Done deal. Jesus is the ultimate authority. There's no way to crack His authority or His witness before the public. Well then, Jesus in chapter 23, and I'm not going to read all through that, but, but it's interesting to see now, with, with this multitude, Jesus gets the proverbial last word. And so here he is before this multitude of people. I mean, Jerusalem, ladies and gentlemen, at this time of the year, during the week of the Feast of the Passover, this is the big time to be in Jerusalem. Be kind of like going up to Times Square for New Year's Eve. I mean, you know how that everybody just packs in. Well, the Jewish historian Josephus said that at this time there were probably as many as two million people. This includes Jewish pilgrims from all over the world. They're packing in to observe the week of the feast of the Passover. And so now imagine the kind of crowd that Jesus... I mean, just the fact that Jesus is going head to head with the Pharisees and the word's out. Hey, there's a big debate going on in the temple complex. You know, they're trying to trip up this Jesus guy. And everybody's packing around. So now that He's absolutely humiliated them, Jesus then has the proverbial last word. And chapter 3 is a scorching... Uh, uh, rebuke of Jesus 
on the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, all the religious establishment. And you'll notice that repeatedly he uses, beginning in verse 13, the word woe, followed by hypocrite. And in that language, woe is a pronouncement of judgment. Jesus, every time He says woe, He's saying, you guys, if you don't repent... God has already set into motion the wheel of judgment on you. The wrath of God is already in the making toward you. So now, just remember that. He's already given a warning. Every time you see the word woe, and you'll notice He uses the word hypocrite in describing the Pharisees. I don't know about you, I don't enjoy anybody calling me a hypocrite. I don't want to be a hypocrite, I want to be the real thing. A hypocrite is someone that pretends to be something that they're really not. In fact, it originally comes out of the etymology of the word used for an actor. Someone who puts on a mask and, and plays a role. Now, beginning in verse 13, this scorching rebuke. Let's, let's just read, let me read that with you. And he's talking to the religious leaders, the establishment of that day. Jesus said, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are in entering to go in. Jesus said it's bad enough that you're not going to make it to heaven. But you are keeping innocent people from coming to God as well. Woe to you. He, verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses for a pretense, make prayers. Therefore you will receive great condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel and uh, land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. He says it's bad enough that you believe wrongly and falsely, but you're promoting your poison theology. And so you're, you're simply dragging people into hell with you. He says, woe on you, you hypocrites. And then jump down to verse 24 with me. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Those you ought to be, uh, ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You see the language and the, almost the humor that Jesus is using there uh, to describe the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be cleaned also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you are outwardly, you out, also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the, of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we had, would, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then, the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? I guess based upon that, Jesus really wouldn't win 
any popularity votes among the religious establishment of that day. You can understand why he was not invited to be a part of the Sanhedrin. He was incensed by the, the, the awful hypocrisy that they were practicing and the, and the fact that it was taking so many people away from God and not to God. So Jesus con- concludes this, this, this heart uh, or this, this scorching rebuke of the Pharisees with, with, in contrast in verse 37, a very heart-riching, heart-warming uh, lament over, the, over Jerusalem. You, you, you sense the heart of the Lord just in what He says as He's looking across the, 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 the city of Jerusalem in verse 37. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And folks, could I just inject here? He's not talking about the buildings. He's not talking about the structures. He's not talking about the infrastructure of the capital city. Jesus is looking at the multitudes of the descendants of Abraham, the people of God, who were to be the covenant people of God. He's looking at the people. And He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When will that occur? When will the Jewish people in unison look up to Christ and say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. It will be at the second coming of the Lord to establish His reign on the earth. And yes, indeed, God will raise up His covenant people, Israel. They will be believers in the true Messiah. Jesus said, but until then, your house is desolate. And prophetically, Jesus was looking just a few years down the road where the Roman legions would swarm upon the city of Jerusalem and form their ramps against the walls and begin to tear down the walls of that great city and demolish the temple and scatter the Jews all over the world. And Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is the heart of the Lord. Jesus leaves the city of Jerusalem. This is about Wednesday in the week, the Passion Week. He's only days away from going to the cross to give His life to pay the price for your sins and mine. Jesus and His disciples leave the city of Jerusalem and go across the Kidron Valley up on the Mount of Olives just adjacent to the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is looking for a place of respite and an opportunity to teach His disciples about the end of the age. The things to come and His glorious second coming. And these two chapters beginning in chapter 24 we'll look at later. If you're into eschatology and the end times, I'll just say, hold on, let us get to Easter, because I don't want to take our focus off of the Passion Week. I want us, as we continue on in the Gospel of Matthew, to focus on the events, the the dramatic, the prophesied uh, events, the key events that, that have impact upon our lives as we look further in the Gospel of Matthew. So, we're going to fast forward. If you've got a fast-forward button in your Bible, just push it and go to chapter 26. Now, those of you that are into prophecy and end times teachings, you're going to probably be holding your breath until we get back to walk through those couple of chapters, and we will, we will. But I want you to now just fast-forward with me 
Like I said, this is about Wednesday and the Passion Week. I want you to look with me as we examine some of the personalities that emerge during these hours. Folks, we're not, we're not just talking days now. It's going hour by hour by hour. Everything that is happening is happening according to the timetable of God. And it's important. And so it's worth us examining. So as we begin looking there in verse 1 of chapter 26, it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that He said... And you, you say, well, wait a minute. What, what sayings? Well, remember, chapter 24, chapter 25, we call it the Olivet Discourse because Jesus was teaching His disciples on the Mount of Olives and He's teaching them about the end times. So He's taught them all of that. And now, after He has finished, He says, You know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. This is not the first time Jesus has told His disciples. If you've been following me with this, this series of messages in the Gospel of Matthew, this is the fourth time that Jesus has made it very clear to His disciples that He's on His way to His death. He's not on His way to be exalted, to be made a king, to be put on an earthly throne. He's on His way to die. And Jesus says, boys, I'm paraphrasing, the countdown clock is going. Only a couple of days. And you will see Me as you've never seen Me. And will understand that. Now, what I want you to glean out of the next few verses with me as we continue on in chapter 26, I call it the heart conditions. The heart conditions of people who, who were encountering Christ and impacting Christ. So, these are people that are written into the story, if you will. The, the, the drama of the Passion Week. And so, let's look. And, and, and when I talk about heart conditions, I'm not talking about blocked arteries or, you know, defib or any of the physiological, you know, problems that people have with hearts. I'm talking about the spiritual heart. It's interesting to see how Matthew shows us and illuminates for us the different people that come in, that come into the life of Christ at this point. And it's worth looking at the variety of people that are in, written into the script, if you will, of what was happening that week. Look at verse 3, for instance. And I call this the murderous heart. Oh, by the way, if you want to do a little heart exam, you can do it. You can follow along and just ask yourself, what is the condition of my heart in my relationship with God, in my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And by the way, the Lord is the ultimate physician. He does a CAT scan, spiritually speaking, on your heart every single day. He knows exactly the condition of your heart, your relationship towards Him. But it'd be good for you to tune in as well. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he says, The Lord searches our hearts, and therein lies a person's true nature, their motives, their thoughts, and their attitudes. And you're going to see this in verse 3. For instance, the murderous hearts, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas. Josephus says this was a murderous, scheming, insecure man. Caiaphas assumed his role as high priest, not, not by spiritual qualifications, by no stretch of the imagination. Under the Roman Empire, a person could get to the, the role of the high priest if he had enough money, if he had enough political influence. Caiaphas had both. 
And so he's not a spiritual man, ladies and gentlemen, just because he carries the title of high priest. He was the instigator behind the whole scheme of the conspiracy to kill Christ. Look at verse 4. And they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now isn't that interesting? They want to kill him. They want to get their hands on him. They want to kill him. There's no doubt about that. But they want to be very careful because he's popular with the multitudes. So they said, we'll just wait until after the feast. That sounds nice and clean and political, doesn't it? The only thing they didn't realize was God had a timetable. God was controlling the events. God was, it was not in God's script to wait till after the feast for His Son, the sacrificial Lamb of God, to go to the cross and give His life for the salvation of those who believe upon Him. No, no, God wasn't working on their timetable, and we'll see that unfold as we continue in the chapters ahead. So, so we see this, this group of people who because of wealth and political aspirations and because of their own selfishness, they, they had a, a, their hearts were filled with murder. You know, Jesus told us in His teachings, in the Beatitudes, He says, if you, you, if you think angrily towards someone, He said, you committed murder. Some of you may be thinking, yikes. I, I maybe need to be on death row. With some of the traffic that we've had with the bad weather and everything, people cutting you off or somebody saying something to embarrass you or humiliate you. How many of us have murder in our minds? But these were intent on carrying out their thoughts. And so we see Jesus is confronted with murderous hearts in verses 3 through 5, but then we move along in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me because I want you to see that Jesus is encountered by a grateful heart. And I would ask you, towards the Lord Jesus Christ, do you have a grateful heart towards the Lord? Does He see that? Look at verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper. Stop there for a minute because Matthew does something and he has the liberty to do this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He takes us back a few days. He, Matthew is simply taking us back. It's a flashback to the Saturday prior. Jesus was in the town of Bethany, which is near Jerusalem. You may recall some other folks that were friends of Jesus that lived in the town of Bethany. A man by the name of Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. And Jesus had earlier raised Lazarus from the dead. He had fellowship with, uh, with Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha. And now Jesus is in the home of a man called Simon the leper. But there's a problem with Simon's name. It's kind of misleading. Because folks, you, you know as well as I do that a leper was excommunicated, if you will, from the community. They were removed physically from the community. They could not, certainly a leper would not host a party. And if he was hosting a party, nobody would come but other lepers. Maybe I would inject it, and that's just why God in His wisdom didn't have me write the Bible, but let Matthew take care of it. But, but you know, Simon the former leper. Do you remember in teachings of the Scriptures that leprosy was the dreaded disease? It was an incurable disease. There is no cure in Jesus' time for leprosy. And yet here's a man who had leprosy who's hosting a party. Something miraculous has happened. Could I inject for your consideration 
The only one that could cure leprosy in that day was Jesus Christ. Simon had encountered him. Maybe he was one of the unnamed lepers that we saw early in the Scriptures that Jesus healed. And he's throwing a party. Bethany's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. And he's invited Mary and Martha and Lazarus, I'm sure. How do we know that? Because John gives us a little insight to that. Over in his Gospel, he helps us to see in chapter 12 that actually... At this party, there was Mary and Martha. Martha was preparing the food because we know from earlier scriptures that that was Martha's thing. She liked to be busy in the kitchen while Mary adoringly would look upon the Lord. Lazarus was, of course, one of Jesus' dear friends at this time. But here is a man who has been healed from an incurable disease that if it didn't kill him physically, it killed him religiously, it killed him socially. And he's been totally healed and he's had Jesus into his heart, into his home, to exhibit the gratitude in his heart. When's the last time that you, out of your gratitude for what Christ has done for you, did something for the Lord? I hope you're here at church to worship the Lord because you're just absolutely grateful. You're saved. You're thankful. You've been... Listen, let... Simon was healed of an incurable disease. So what? So were we. It wasn't leprosy. It was sin. There is no cure for sin apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Sin is deadly. That's what Paul says in Romans 6.23. For the penalty of sin is death. Separation from God. But praise God. Every one of us ought to throw a party for Jesus. That might not be a bad idea. Might increase some hospitality in the church. Everybody starts sending out invitations. Come over to my house for dinner because I'm just wanting to show my gratitude for the Lord for saving me. Be sure and put the pastor on your invitation list. I do have a partiality towards barbecue. So if you're thinking about the menu. But let's move along because in this, in this great social gathering there in Bethany where Simon is expressing his gratitude by inviting Jesus and a lot of his friends in, in, in verse 7 it says, A woman came to him, having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. And let's just stop there for a second, because if we were to go over to the Gospel of John, and chapter 12, In verse 1, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom He had raised from the dead. There they made Him a supper. And Matthew says it was at Simon's house. Mary, Martha. Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with Him. And by the way, it's a little misleading when we talk about sitting at a table because we're thinking about sitting at a round table in chairs or a rectangular table in chairs. But in that day, the, the meal was served virtually on the floor, if not on a mat. And the guests would lay on, on their sides and, and they would all reach over into the, into the, uh, the circle, the inner circle where the food was and, and just kind of graze off of the food and eat. So you were actually reclined. And so they all reclined at that point. Now look at verse 3 in John chapter 12 because John sheds a little bit more light on who the woman, mystery woman is in Matthew's Gospel chapter 26. So go back to John chapter 12. It says, Then Mary 
took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now, hold your place there and you go back to Matthew because I want you to see, they, they fill in the gaps from the two different perspectives. Because over in, in chapter 26, as they are there uh, at the, the feast, and it says in verse 8, chapter 26 of Matthew, but when His disciples saw it. So it makes it sound like all the disciples together were mad. This woman's wasting this very expensive perfume. And, and, and as you'll see, they go on to say, you know, this, this could be, this could have been sold and, and it would have brought much and it could have been given to the poor. But then we go back to John's Gospel, chapter 12, King in on verse 4. There's always a troublemaker in the midst. John sheds more light on it. Look what he says in verse 4. Then one of his disciples. Wonder who that would be. Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? We're going to get to that. But Judas was behind all of this. All right, let's go back to chapter 12. There's something more that he says there in John chapter 12 that I think is... Look what he says in verse 6. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. I thought that was interesting. Judas carrying the money box, and yet he's the most deceitful of them all. He had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. He's a thief. He was stealing. Judas wasn't interested in where the money, that the money would actually go to the, to the poor. But, but what I want you to see here with this incident with Mary, you remember another time when Jesus was in the house of Lazarus and Mary and Martha were there and Martha was serving and she was upset because Mary was not helping to, you know, wash the pots and pans and get everything out of the microwave and turn down the oven and keep everything and get the tea made and everything. She And Mary, Martha was running around in a frenzy and she said, Lord, can't you get my sister? She's just sitting here listening to you. <laughs> Mary got it. Jesus said, Martha, Martha. Mary has found the weightier thing, the most important thing. It's not... Food? It's the spiritual food that I'm serving up. She got it. As I take you back to Matthew chapter 26, could I submit for your consideration that right here, Mary got it. She heard Jesus say, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. And it's coming up soon. During the feast of the Passover, Mary was probably the only one, possibly except for Judas. It's a possibility that Judas, realizing that Jesus was really sincere, that He was going to die, that Judas became disillusioned and said, that's not the Messiah I was on board for. So, But, but I, I believe, not just me, but, but conservative biblical commentators that I've read, say that Mary... Got it. And what she was doing here as she was anointing Jesus with this very expensive perfume, she was expressing worship to the Lord. 
She was anointing His body for burial. That's what, that's what the Lord said there. Look, as Jesus is rebuking the disciples for trying to criticize her, He says in verse 10 of Matthew 26, Why do you bother or trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Do you understand she was the only one that anointed the body of Christ for burial. You said, well, wait a minute, preacher. After he was crucified, he was taken down off the cross. Yeah, they, they buried him. They put him in the tomb temporarily. On the first day of the week, Easter, the women came back, didn't they? What did they bring with them? Pictures of Jesus to remember him by? Memorials? No. They came with spices and, 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 and oil. They came to anoint His body. Guess what? Nobody. He risen. I'm getting ahead of myself. So what Mary was doing right here, as she is lovingly, she's worshiping Him. She, she's given us some elements of what worship is really about. Number one, it's sacrificial. When you come to worship God, you need to talk about the worth of God. And express to God through your praise and your prayers, your giving of your offerings. You ought to say, Lord, you mean so much to me. I'm willing to sacrifice. And Mary's sacrifice would amount to be about a whole year's salary. Because of her adoration of the Lord. And, 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 and humility. She not only anointed His head, but His feet. But listen, John says she didn't use a washcloth. Ladies in that day wore real long hair and, and, and she took her hair and, and wiped the... Listen, a mere cloth would not do for the precious Son of God. Hey, listen, they, listen, in this precious woman you see a heart of worship. So we're back in Matthew 26 now. We're moving along. Look at chapter 14. Boy, there's a scene change. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot, the keeper of the money, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. The chief priests and scribes couldn't believe it. Here they were trying to come up with an elaborate plan to somehow trap Jesus away from the multitudes so that they could kind of privately kill him. And boom, here comes one of his own disciples. One of the twelve comes up and says, look, I'll serve him on a silver platter. Folks, consider, Jesus had a disciple with Him with a deceitful heart. He spoke the words. He went through the motions. But His heart was never sold out to the Lord. In contrast, ironically, Imagine this. Judas sold out the Son of God for the price of an average slave. Thirty pieces of silver. What a deceitful and dark heart. I need to move along. In verse 17, now Jesus is, is there with His disciples. We're up to Thursday. Now on the first day of the feast. Now what we're looking at now is the heart of Jesus in contrast to these others that were murderous and deceitful. 
But, but I want you to see some things, and I'll try to quickly walk you through this in verse 17. Things that reveal the true heart of the Savior, our Lord. It says, Now on the first day of the week of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And He said, "Come in, I'll go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. Now when evening had come, He sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, He said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray Me. Stop just a second. Jesus has already told them four times He was going to die. This is the first time He says, Oh, by the way, fellas, another thing. One of you is going to betray Me. Now don't you think that stirs up the nest? So, so there they are. And look at verse 22. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each one of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? I mean, is it possible that, that I could, could have it in me to, to betray the Lord? Folks, don't underestimate your ability to turn on the Lord. That's why it's important we constantly, using the Word of God, under the power of the Spirit of God, always examine our hearts. Because there have been plenty of people who have sat in church pews, who have been on church rolls, who under the right kind of, or I guess I should say the wrong kind of circumstances, have absolutely turned against and vehemently have become adversaries of the gospel. Don't underestimate the ability within you if you're not truly a born-again believer in Jesus Christ and Judas wasn't. Then Jesus, in verse 23, and he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. And it's interesting because I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but in John's Gospel, chapter 13, if you want to go over there and read some, this was a private conversation going on between Jesus and John. Peter, when Jesus said this according to John, Peter turned to John and said, Hey, ask him who it is. I mean, Peter is inquisitive and all. John, the beloved disciple, being next to Jesus, remember, they were reclined at the table. He's, he's parallel to the Lord. And John says that, that John, talking about himself, just leaned up closer to the Lord. Because he was his buddy. He was really close to the Lord and said, which one is it, Lord? And this is when Jesus said, it's the one who dips his hand into the dish after me. And And... and John knew that, but there's no record to say that he passed that information along to Peter. In verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying Him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He's trying to cover for himself. He's trying to fit in with the rest of the guys. He knows knows it's Him. He's got the 30 pieces of silver jingling in his pocket. And he has the audacity to say, so the other disciples go, Hey, is is it me? Is it Peter? Is it Andrew? We don't know. He knew. But what I want you to see is, first of all, in the Lord, what He says here is a heart of justice. I thought it was interesting, Eddie, in your um, study Wednesday night, you had us struggling with the tension between the sovereignty of God and, and the free will of man. And, and you, you made a point of, of pointing out. Did, did Judas, did he have control of what he was doing or was he simply a puppet in the hands of God? God knew before the foundation of the world that Judas was going to betray him. Jesus knew that. 
So, was this truly a choice that Judas made? I believe some insights right here helps us to understand. Yes, it was. Oh, God knew it was going to happen, but Judas still had control. He made that decision. He exercised his will to to betray the Lord. And because of that, Jesus pronounced judgment on him. And boy, what a judgment it is. As compassionate as the heart of the Lord is, He is still just, He still hates sin, and He he also brings judgment on sin. Look at the judgment that Jesus de- uh, declared on, on, on uh, Judas in verse 24. He said, but woe, what did I say woe meant? Woe meant says, if you don't repent, if you don't repent, He's given Judas his last warning, his last chance. If that man doesn't repent, the wheels of God's judgment and wrath are already in process of turning against you, Judas. It's crunch time, folks. And how do we know? How do we know that Judas made the decision? Well, you have to go into John's Gospel again and you'll see it tells us at that moment at that moment, Satan entered into him. Satan doesn't force his way into people's hearts. You have to open your heart up to him. You have to open your will up to him. Judas chose Satan over Christ. And from that point on, he became an instrument in the hands of the devil. And Jesus said, it would have been better if Judas had never been born. Because what he has waiting on him in eternal torment for betraying the Son of God. Folks, listen. I believe hell has degrees of judgment. Scripture talks about that. And I believe Judas is at the bottom of the heap betraying the Son of God. So, there's a heart of justice. But folks, go ahead with me in chapter 26. It talks about Jesus and the disciples. Judas has left. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed it. And He broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, Take and eat. This is My body. And He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is My blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. Jesus shows right right there, He's got a heart of justice, but He's also got a heart of grace. His heart is filled with grace. He's saying, this, these elements of the table, you do this in remembrance of me, and every time you break the bread, you remember, my body was broken for you, for your sins. Every time you drink the cup, always remember, it represents, it symbolizes my blood, my atoning precious blood that was shed for you. Folks, that's grace. And Jesus' heart was filled with grace. Verse 30, And when they had sung a hymn, Tim mentioned in the responsive reading, the Hallel, and we read read responsively this morning, that's a collection of of, of psalms, Psalm 111 through 118, and and they were singing those psalms that night. We talk about Jesus and His disciples singing that night. They were singing the psalms. 118 through 118. They go out back to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. 
Jesus is quoting from the prophet Zechariah chapter 13. And, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all were made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that, that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. They all in unison said, No, Lord, we'll never desert you. We'll never leave you. I want you to see something. Don't miss this. Because in the midst of Jesus telling them, Boys, listen. In just a little while, Zechariah 13 is going to be fulfilled. You, my faithful followers, he says, you're going to scatter like sheep. You're going to desert me. And Peter, you're even going to deny me. The just thing, the fair thing for Jesus, hey, listen, what happens when people desert you, when people deny you? The just thing for Jesus to, to do would say, that's it, fellas, I'm writing you off. I don't have any need for you anymore. But listen to what he says. Jesus said in verse 32, he says, but I, after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus says, I'm going to get back with you. Even after all of that, even after you desert me, you still have a place in my kingdom. You still have a part in my plan. He says, I will call for you to meet me at, in Galilee. And then if we look over, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 28, 28 on Easter morning, when Jesus was there at the tomb, He had been resurrected and, the, and Mary was there. And he, what did He tell her? Go tell my disciples. Go tell them that I'm going to meet them in Galilee. I'm not done with them. Sure, they deserted me. Sure, they denied me. But they still are my disciples. That's a word of, that reveals the, the element of mercy in the Lord. You know, sometimes we need the Lord's mercy. No, let me rephrase that. All the time we need the Lord's mercy. How many times when the Lord has counted on us to witness to someone, to serve someone, to give sacrificially for His kingdom causes, or to be in church to worship Him, to say an encouraging word to a fellow believer, or to treat a neighbor with love, to show the love of God. How many times have we deserted Him? And He could have easily said, forget you. How dare you go chasing off after things of the flesh and things of the world. I don't have any need for you anymore. I thank the Lord that He is a God of mercy. I thank you. I thank the Lord that just as He is a God of justice, He brings uh, judgment upon sin. He is also a God with a heart of grace. He is also a God with a heart of mercy. And that's exactly what Jesus was exhibiting for His disciples to see and to learn about Him. And for you and I to learn too. Let's bow our heads. Continue that heart examination. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I pray this, this uh, morning that as we conclude the sermon and prepare to conclude our worship experience, uh, Lord, in this time of, of meditation and reflection, I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that You speak, search and speak to all of our hearts. Lord, maybe there's somebody here this morning that's filled, absolutely filled with anger bitterness. They have a murderous heart. Or maybe there's someone here who's going through the motions of Christianity, just playing the part, saying the right things and looking the part, but deep inside, wow, they're no different than Judas. They betray you in the way they live and the friends they have and the things that they prioritize in their lives.
Lord, I pray that You search our hearts right now. Help us to be honest with You and truthful with You as we look at the condition of our own heart. I pray that there will be many amongst us today who have the heart of Simon, a heart filled with gratitude as they consider, as we consider what You've done so graciously and sacrificially for us. Lord, I pray that there will be many among us today who have a worshipful heart just like Mary. That we're willing to sacrifice whatever it takes, Lord, just to express to You our deep abiding love for You. Lord, I pray, search our hearts. And if there be any wickedness, any sin, as You exhibit Your grace towards us, against the background of Your justice and Your mercy towards us, Lord, help us to respond with confession of our sins and repentance of our sins so that we can have the right heart towards You. That we might benefit from Your grace and Your mercy. Lord, we don't have to wait till we clean our act up and become religious to come to You. You tell us, Lord, that we can come just as we are. All of mistakes and flaws and and, and no matter how bad, You're willing to receive us back if we come with a humble, broken heart, seeking forgiveness from You and restoration. You're so willing to provide that. I pray, Lord, if there be anyone that needs to make a heart decision today, I pray that You would lead them to do that. Cause them to feel a need to just come forward and, and share that decision with me. Or kneel here at the altar and pray and, and, and make it right with You. Whatever the decision needs to be, Lord, take control right now. For Your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.